Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host, and as usual, across the table from me is my good pal Matthew. Hello, Matthew. It's cold in here today. It is cold, but uh, it's better than the heat. But I'm wearing my bare feet, so. You're wearing your bare foots. <laughs> Maybe I'll get us a little ceramic heater for in here. Oh. And you should probably start wearing socks and not shorts. It is November, Matthew. <laughs> it's November and I'm wearing shorts. Yeah, you're still wearing shorts. It's like he just got I'm, up out of bed. I'm truly Canadian. Is that Canadian? I, I wear my shorts till about mid-December. Oh, oh, good Lord. Mm -hmm. I prefer wearing shorts. I like the way I feel in shorts, but too bloody cold. I like the way I feel. Is there a freedom that you like? There's a freedom. My, <laughs> my legs are free. My shark belly white legs. <laughs> the views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Where's the beef? I, I'm not sure. There's not usually beef in poutine. You can add some if you'd like. It's good with beef on top. It really is. Mm -hmm. And typically it's beef gravy, I think, that they use. And beef hash. Oh my. I want some now. We're going to be so fat. In September of 2009, in Cozy Cove, a quiet rural neighborhood near Tweed, Ontario, an anonymous young woman sleeping in her home was brutally sexually assaulted by an unknown assailant who'd broken into her place. During the violent two-hour sexual assault, as her eight-week-old daughter slept in another room, the rapist snapped photos of the woman before escaping into the night. Two weeks later, in the same small neighborhood, the creeper struck again, sexually assaulting another woman, Lori Massacott. Her rapist also photographed her before fleeing. A neighbor of Lori's was suspected in the assault, but he denied any involvement. He was later cleared when his DNA did not match that of Lori's attacker. Police suspected the two sexual assaults were somehow connected as they were both so similar. Just two months later, November 2009, the body of 37-year-old flight attendant at Canadian Forces Base Trenton, Corporal Mary France Camo, was discovered in her Brighton, Ontario home. She'd been violently sexually assaulted, murdered, and left in her bed. For the next year, police fruitlessly chased down lead after lead. In January of 2010, another young woman, Jessica Lloyd, vanished from her home in Belleville, Ontario and evidence in the home pointed to a sexual assault, abduction, and possible murder. The OPP saw similarities in all the cases mentioned here, and were concerned that if left unchecked, this killer would continue hunting women. In their efforts to uncover what had happened to Jessica Lloyd, investigators identified distinctive tire tracks left in the snow near her home, which eventually led to a suspect. None other than the wing commander of Number 8 Wing at nearby Canadian Forces Base Trenton, 46-year-old Colonel David Russell Williams. He later confessed to the crimes, as well as many others that had taken place in his two-year descent into darkness, sexual assault, and finally, his escalation to murder. You're listening to Dark Poutine, episode 196, Without Honor, The Crimes of Russell Williams, 
part one. David Russell Williams started out his life as a privileged child, but was otherwise fairly ordinary. Williams was not born in Canada, but instead the UK. His parents, Cedric David Williams and Christine Noni, born Chivers, welcomed him into the world on March 7, 1963. His parents were from two well-respected British families. His paternal grandfather was a British civil defense officer and his paternal grandfather was an executive with British Petroleum Oil. William's father was highly educated, having received his PhD in metallurgy. The future looked bright for the youngster right out of the gate. He and his brother Harvey Rees, who was born in 1965, enjoyed the good life as they grew up. From Alan R. Warren's book, Beyond Suspicion, in 1968, quote, his family immigrated to Canada and they moved to Chalk River, Ontario, where his father was hired as a metallurgist at Canada's premier nuclear research facility, Chalk River Laboratories. It was once a top-secret installation created to help the United States with the Manhattan Project, a research and development project during World War II that produced the first nuclear weapons. Those were the ones later dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They lived close to CFB Petawawa for those years. After the family was settled, Russell's mom, Christine, hung out her shingle as a private physiotherapist with a focus on children. Russell's parents' marriage fell apart when Russell and his brother were still youngsters. According to Timothy Appleby's 2011 book, A New Kind of Monster, William's father, David, was, quote, a loud authoritarian figure and often insulted his wife in public. Soon after arriving in Canada, Russell's parents struck up a friendship with another couple, Jerry and Marilyn Sovkas. Jerry, a nuclear physicist, also worked at Chalk River. The two couples quickly became good friends and spent a lot of their spare time together. Things got messy. In October 1969, Christine Williams filed for divorce, citing her husband David's affair with Lynn Sovka as the reason. Christine was also involved with Jerry Sovka, whom she married soon after the divorce from David was final. The boys went with Christine and Jerry when they moved to North York, Ontario, to escape the gossip that had risen up around the two couples. Russell and his brother even took Sovka's last name for a while. It was trying to figure out why that was. I think there might be something indicative of Russell Williams' personality here. Maybe he's a, like a chameleon, mm. wants to leave his dad behind for some reason. That's really weird that a son would change his name from his father's but last name. You said for a while. Well, he changes it back later. Yeah, I wonder why would he do that? Maybe when he was young, mm. right? There are times where I was really pissed off with my dad. Yeah. And if my mother and dad divorced, you know, I, I probably would have been like a kid sure. going, I'm going to change it because I'm mad at you. Because you know I'm mad I mean? at dad. Yeah. And he was only young. It, it, they broke up in 69, so he would have been, you know, still a child at that point. Like Maybe his mom got him to change it, and then when he got older, he decided to change it back. Could be. Yeah. Just so there weren't any questions. Mm. Yeah, I guess it was a different era. Yeah. And But I knew lots of divorced kids, so... With yeah. remarried parents. But they kept no. their name. Yeah, they kept yeah. their name. Yeah. Strange. Russell Williams seemed like an average, well-adjusted kid. From Alan R. Warren's Beyond Suspicion, Russell then began high school at Toronto's Birchmount Park Collegiate and started to deliver the Globe and Mail newspaper for work. His mother had him taking piano lessons, and he joined the school band where he played the trumpet. It was there that Russell met his first girlfriend, Sarah, who was a flute player in the school band. Sarah was known as a happy girl who liked to play jokes on others. They were inseparable for the two years that they dated. Nobody knows the reasons they broke up or how Russell handled it. End quote. In 1979, after a brief stint living in South Korea where the family had moved so his stepfather could oversee a nuclear reactor project there, Russell was unhappy. Neither he nor his brother liked Korea very much at all. Alan R. Warren wrote that Russell was, quote, disturbed by the way that women were treated in South Korea. He would find himself getting into fights with the Korean men as they liked to spit on the women that they were angry with, end quote. An odd reaction, considering his later treatment of women and girls during his crime spree. After only a year in the country, Russell moved back to Canada, where he spent two years as a boarding student at Toronto's Upper Canada College as he finished high school. 
Mm. I can confirm that Korean men do not spit on women as a matter of practice. As a matter of practice, uh, yeah. This guy doesn't like South Korea, so that's, for me, one strike against him already because he, we talked earlier, show how much I love love that country. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot more strikes against him as we... I can imagine yeah. there will be. It was when he went to University of Toronto Scarborough campus, UTSC, that Russell changed his surname back to his birth name Williams from Sovka. There, he set to work studying economics and political science, graduating with a Bachelor of Arts in 1986. Coincidentally, another student taking some of the same economics courses as Russell Williams at UTSC at the same time was none other than one of Canada's most notorious serial killers, Paul Bernardo. Before he became a murderer, Bernardo, who graduated a year after Williams, was also responsible for numerous rapes of young women and girls in the Scarborough area taking place between 1987 and 1990. The Scarborough rapist was unknown to police until a voluntarily provided sample of Bernardo's DNA matched against DNA taken from one of the sexual assault victims. Bernardo's DNA had sat untested for more than two years, and by the time that the labs got to it, he had already progressed to murder. It was too late for Tammy Homolka, Leslie Mahaffey, and Kristen French. It's unclear whether Williams and Bernardo knew each other at school, but the chances of two of the country's most infamous serial killers having been in the same room at the same point are astronomically against that having happened. But it probably did. How strange is that? Ladies and gentlemen, can I suggest that you don't guys from the U of T Scarberia campus. Yeah, Scarberia, you call it. Scarberia. Yeah. Wow. It, Could you, like, two, because these are both very famous serial killers. Very, Canada, yeah. And they were in the same classes together. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it's not clear whether they even, you know, crossed paths. They had to have. Maybe yeah. bump into each other in the halls, but I, I'm sure that the classes were large. Yeah. But at the same time, the fact that they were in the same room. It's like a billion to one. Yeah, right? very weird. Russell did have a steady girlfriend in college. When they finally put an end to their relationship, he was devastated. He did not have another girlfriend for years afterward. His confidence had taken a real blow during the breakup, so he began looking for something to do. He wanted to reinvent himself. He found what he was looking for in the film Top Gun. He decided he wanted to, eventually, fly jets and signed up for beginner flying lessons at Toronto Buttonville Municipal Airport. There's another strike against him. What? Tom Cruise lover. Yeah. Again, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> never date guys who model their lives after Top Gun. <laughs> so how do you feel about Top Gun? I actually loathe almost as much as I loathe Reva McIntyre, Tom Cruise. Oh, wow. Yeah. And has it always been that way or? Yeah. Oh, weird. Yeah. He just, he always annoyed me. I don't, you know, just sometimes somebody annoys you. You don't know why. Yeah. Tom Cruise and Reba McIntyre, the top of my list. <laughs> Very weird. What did Reba do? Oh, she's just her face. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you just want to slap her? <laughs> Every time I look at her stupid face. <laughs> oh boy. Russell Williams joined the Canadian Armed Forces in 1987. Driven to succeed, and his goal of becoming a fighter pilot was top of mind. He received his flying wings in 1990, and was then posted to three Canadian Forces Flying Training School, based at CFB Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, where he served for two years as an instructor. Williams was promoted to captain on January 1, 1991. He was also married that year on June 1st to Mary Elizabeth Harriman, who later became an associate director of the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada. Williams was posted to 434 Combat Support Squadron at CFB Shearwater, Nova Scotia, in 1992. There, he flew the CC-144 Challenger in an electronic warfare and coastal patrol role. In 1994, he was posted to the 412 Transport Squadron in Ottawa, where he transported VIPs, including high-ranking government officials and foreign dignitaries, 
also on Challengers. He was promoted to Major in November of 1999 and was posted to Director General Military Careers in Ottawa, where he served as the multi-engine pilot career manager. He earned a Master of Defense Studies from the Royal Military College of Canada in 2004 with a 55-page thesis that supported preemptive war in Iraq, and in June 2004, he was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, and the following month, he was appointed Commanding Officer of 437 Transport Squadron at CFB Trenton, Ontario, a post he held for two years. From December 2005 to May 2006, Williams also served as the commanding officer of Camp Mirage, a secretive logistics facility believed to be located at Al-Minhad Air Base in Dubai, United Emirates, that provided support to Canadian forces operations in Afghanistan. Also in July of 2006, Williams and his wife moved to Orleans, a suburb of Ottawa, and into their dream home. Further adding to their enviable life, it was also around this time that Russell and Elizabeth bought themselves a small summer home on Cozy Cove Lane. The community of Cozy Cove is a tiny cottage community on Stocko Lake in the municipality of Tweed in Hastings County, Ontario. Situated off the 401, halfway between Toronto and Ottawa, which are just over a two-hour drive away to the west and the east, respectively. There are a few permanent residents in Cozy Cove, but many of the homes are summer homes of city dwellers hoping to escape Ontario's busy cities on the weekend, spending time doing what people do in cottage country. The settlement is about 25 kilometers east of the village of Tweed, which has a population of just over 1,500, so there are plenty of amenities nearby without the hustle and bustle. It was the perfect getaway for Russell Williams and his wife when a tough work week was through. Ooh, sounds cozy. It does. Cozy Cove. From Alan R. Warren's Beyond Suspicion, quote, It was on a weekend in the fall of 2007 when a series of unusual break-ins began to unfold in and around Tweed. Russell Williams was at his cottage and neighbor Larry Jones was at home next door when he got a frantic phone call from his daughter, who lived nearby. She'd come from a party and surprised an intruder in jogging clothes. Larry Jones later said, quote, Christine opened the door to go from the garage into the house and saw this long, tall figure run past the door on the deck and jump over the fence and run off in the bush. She thought it was just one of the neighborhood kids and nothing seemed to be missing. It would be years before the police told her something different, end quote. It was after that when women in the Cozy Cove neighborhood, not able to see anything else out of place, began to discover that items of lingerie, like bras and panties, had disappeared without a trace. Ooh, Cozy Cove is starting to sound less cozy. Yeah, not very cozy. Creepy, man. After French language training in Gatineau, Quebec, in early 2009, Williams was promoted to full colonel. And on July 15th, he was sworn in as the wing commander at CFB Trenton by the outgoing wing commander, Brigadier General Michael Hood. Russell Williams was, by every definition, a rising star in Canada's military. He had flown Queen Elizabeth II and the Duke of Edinburgh, the Governor General of Canada, the Prime Minister of Canada, and many other dignitaries across Canada and overseas in Canadian Forces VIP aircraft. But Russell Williams had some dark desires that had been swirling around inside him for a long time. It's hard to say what happened to lead Russell Williams to do the terrible things that he eventually did. Some have posited that one factor in Williams' descent into darkness was the pressure of the responsibility of command and the expectations being heaped on him that made things finally boil over and he began secretly acting out in awful ways. There are other theories as well. We'll get into some of those later. From the agreed statement of facts in the Russell Williams prosecution years later, quote, Williams later admitted that beginning in the fall of 2007 in Tweed, he began breaking into houses and stealing women's lingerie and other clothing. He targeted houses where attractive young women lived. His stated age of preference was women in their late teens to early 30s. He admitted to taking photographs inside the homes he broke into, specifically in the bedrooms, in the lingerie drawers, and often of himself wearing lingerie from that residence. 
He also often masturbated inside the homes. The majority of his break and enters were done overnight, often past midnight. He also admitted to breaking into more than one house per night on six different occasions. In the majority of the occurrences, none of the occupants were home. When he would return to his house, either in Tweed or Ottawa, after an occurrence, he would place any lingerie he had stolen in boxes or bags. When he accumulated too many items, he would dispose of them, including on two occasions, June 21, 2008 and March 29, 2009, where he brought items to different fields just outside of Ottawa and burned them." End quote. After he returned home from a night of prowling, he would relive his crimes, taking pictures of the stolen lingerie items and other items he felt were trophies of his crimes. While doing so, he often modeled the lingerie and or masturbated while wearing it. He used a tripod to take photos of himself in the stolen intimate items. When he was done taking pictures, he downloaded all of his photographs, also important trophies, that helped him to go back to his crime scenes in his mind and then cataloged them into a complex file folder system he created on his computer at his Ottawa home. He would look at them and masturbate. Apparently, the Creeper's crime spree started on September 9, 2007. This was the first of three break-and-enters into the home of friends of Russell Williams on Cozy Cove Lane. The family had lived there since 2003 with their two children, one of whom was a 12-year-old daughter when Russell broke in. They considered Russell and his wife Elizabeth their friends and had hosted them for dinner on numerous occasions. Russell had often taken the children tubing on Stocko Lake. Even creepier still, on six different occasions between summer and December 2009, the 12-year-old daughter looked after the Williams cat at the Williams Cozy Cove Lane address. They trusted her so much that she had a key for their home. At the time of their interview with police later in March of 2010, the family were unaware of anyone having been in their home without their permission, nor had they ever noticed anything missing. Some of the following description is a bit disturbing, so you may want to ensure that there's no little ears around. From the agreed statement of facts in the case, Mr. Williams admitted to Detective Sergeant Smith that he broke into XX Cozy Cove Lane on three occasions, the first being on September 9, 2007, when he broke into the home through an open door. He stole six pieces of female undergarments. On this occasion, he took 25 photographs dated September 8th and 9th, 2007, from 9.40 p.m. to 12.24 a.m. He later downloaded those onto his computer. These pictures show the inside of the daughter's bedroom, the 12-year-old, meaning he was in her room for at least 2 hours and 44 minutes. Pictures show the bedroom, with a focus on the young girl's underwear drawers, her closet, and her bed. The decor shown in these pictures is clearly indicative of the room belonging to a young girl. Notably, there are 11 further pictures where Mr. Williams is either standing in a pair of female underwear showing his penis, standing in front of a mirror, with a pink piece of clothing hanging from his erect penis, or laying on the bed naked, masturbating with what appears to be the same piece of pink clothing. In three of these pictures, he has clearly ejaculated, end quote. Beginning May 2008, a rash of similar crimes occurred in the vicinity of Williams' home in the Orleans area of Ottawa. Williams victimized families whose members included girls or young women entering residence at night when the people were away. In some cases, he made return visits. Sometimes Williams walked in through unlocked doors. Other times he gained entry by cutting a screen, forcing a window open, or picking a lock. Some of the Orleans break-and-enter and thefts of women's underwear had been noticed and reported by 15 of the 25 homeowners who'd been targeted. The crimes in Tweed were not yet connected to these, not by a long shot, but the evidence was disturbing. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, he was becoming more aggressive. In one home, he had left a taunting message on a computer. In another, police found semen on a photograph of a woman, end quote. Police brought in longtime OPP criminal profiler Jim Van Allen. Van Allen, who I spoke with in a recent episode of Alan R. Warren's House of Mystery, worked up a profile of the as-yet-unknown subject. 
Van Allen talked to author Timothy Appleby for his book, A New Kind of Monster. Quote, He was messaging the victims and the victim's family by disturbing their living space, and he was getting a kick out of it, says Van Allen. I look at all behavior on a continuum. And one of the things I'm seeing here is this. He could have just stolen the underwear off of a clothesline or something like that, but he's getting into the homes. He's in the beds. He's trying the underwear on. And I see that as a psychological movement toward the victim's bodies. Van Allen felt that the unsub was becoming more and more aggressive, and it was just a matter of time before he progressed to sexual assault or further. Over the next two years, Russell Williams went on to do similar things in other homes around Cozy Cove and in Ottawa. He would later be charged with break and enter into 48 total residences, 23 located in the Tweed-Belleville area and 25 located in the Orleans area of Ottawa. He either broke into or attempted to break into all of these residences, many on more than one occasion. Only 17 of the 48 homeowners reported to police that their homes had been broken into. 61 of Williams' 82 offenses, therefore, went undetected or unreported until his arrest. Contrary to Russell Williams' claims of stated age preference being women over the age of 18, girls under the age of 18 were either the sole or joint targets of Williams in 13 of the homes that he broke into. As depraved as these acts were, he was getting bored. He'd already committed 62 successful break-and-enters. Russell began to feel he wanted to do something more. He wanted to take things further. According to the Toronto Star, quote, On July 10, 2009, he was at a neighbor's house in Tweed, which he would eventually break into nine times. This was his sixth visit. At 1.30 a.m., he watched as the young woman stripped and stepped into the shower. Williams stripped naked, broke into her home, walked to her bedroom, and stole her panties. In another escalation, he hoped to watch a teenager undress and while waiting outside her window, stripped naked in the bushes and masturbated, end quote. In August of 2009, he noticed a pretty new neighbor, probably in her early 20s, in the tiny Cozy Cove community. He liked what he saw. He started fantasizing about the young woman. It was then that he decided he would try something even darker. And we'll take a break right here. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're back. Matthew, thoughts on this episode so far? This guy's a total freak. Yeah. Like it's, um, you can see one thing I've learned sort of doing true crime with you mm-hmm. for the last while is you can start seeing how things ramp up. Yeah. And I often wonder like, do they know when they start this sort of stuff that they're going to eventually get to the point where they're killing somebody? A lot of them say that they have had the desire to kill uh, for a long time and it was working up through the progression. And then they get sort of more, more and more confident as they go. As they do the one thing sort of higher up on the, or should I say lower down on the ladder, they become more comfortable with that. They do it a couple of times then they do something else even darker. Upper rung. I feel so bad for these women and and women in general, you know, what bothers me is so many of my female friends have to be so much more vigilant than I am. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, you know how I go for walks like four o'clock in the morning, right along the seawall in the dark. If a woman's jogging past me, cause there's some people out at that time as well. Mm -hmm. I do like a super gay, good morning. Hiya. (laughs) Just so she feels more comfortable. Like I go out of my way because I'm like, Oh God, I'd be like, it's dark. And I'm like on the seawall, nobody else around. Yeah. You're a big, big man. And I'm a big guy. And I just, I, I want people to feel like I'm not a threat. It's interesting. I've been doing some interviews for the book and I keep getting asked that question. Why are people so interested in true crime and, and women in particular? 
And I, I say that just that, that women feel that they need to learn something. Maybe these are cautionary tales for a lot of them or women who have already been assaulted in some way feel some sort of comfort in hearing, maybe yeah. hearing these, these stories about uh, other women. They don't feel so alone with it. Yeah. It's awful. It's a weird society we're in. The weather in Cozy Cove was seasonal, relatively cool, but humid in the wee hours of the morning on September 17th, 2009. The clouds moved silently across the sky, but there was something else in the shadows, something more sinister. In one of the homes, a woman who we'll call Joan had worked in a bakery, but she left her job to be a stay-at-home mom. 21-year-old Joan had moved into the residence with her boyfriend and daughter, now only eight weeks old, just a month earlier. The couple were looking forward to raising their little girl away from urban sprawl. What better place than here, in Cozy Cove? Joan's boyfriend had grown up nearby, so it was homecoming for him. But for Joan, it was a brand new neighborhood, and she had yet to connect much with her neighbors. They were all still strangers, or at best, nodding acquaintances. That said, it sure seemed like a nice place. She was alone with her daughter that day, as she was most weekdays. Her boyfriend had a good job with a utility company, but it required him to be on the road and away from home for the entire week. She'd felt like she needed company that evening, so she'd taken her daughter to visit her mother who lived nearby. Joan had arrived home around 9.30 p.m., put the baby to bed before cleaning up a bit around the house. Before she retired to her own bedroom, Around 11 p.m., Joan checked to make sure the front door was locked and did not check the windows. She didn't feel she needed to. One of them was open and would be the entryway that gave evil access to Joan's home as she slept. According to the agreed statement of facts in the case, Russell Williams later confessed that he'd spotted Joan more than a week ago and had become interested in her. When he entered the house, he'd gone straight to her bedroom where he'd stood over Joan's bed, watching her sleep for at least five minutes prior to making his move. Knowing that he had the power to do as he willed in those moments excited the housebreaker. Joan was startled awake by someone holding her head down into her pillow. At first she thought it was some sort of dream, but became aware quickly that the nightmare was quite real and she was now wide awake and terrified. The intruder, much stronger than Joan, just held her there for what she believed was around 30 minutes, but her estimate might have been off one way or the other. She struggled as hard as she could, but she soon tired out. Perhaps this was her intruder's intention. As he held her there, the two began talking. Joan asked the intruder if he was going to kill her. He told her no, but refused to let her move. She could not see his face due to the position he had her in and the darkness in the room. The man told her numerous times not to look at him. Joan asked what time it was, saying that the baby usually woke around 4 a.m. The man told her that it was only 1. The man then questioned Joan, asking how long she'd lived there. She told him, but when the intruder asked where her boyfriend was, Joan refused to answer, thinking things would go better for her if her intruder felt that they might be interrupted at some point. This only angered the intruder, who lifted Joan and roughly moved her toward the side of the bed, hands on her back, making sure she could not see his face as he remained behind her. He struck Joan hard on the side of the head three times, dazing her, while he told her to stay quiet and not to look at him. He told her, It's my job to control you. What a weak, weak little man. Yeah. Total loser. Yeah, it's interesting how... He has all this quote-unquote power in his life. He was actually a very powerful person in his position. I guess maybe he felt very powerless in certain areas of his life, and my guess is there was probably some impotency problems. Yeah, he had a winky problem. Yeah, who knows. Thinking quickly, and perhaps out of some survival instinct, Joan said to the intruder that he didn't seem like the type of person who would do this kind of thing, and he seemed to soften at that point. The intruder tried to use a baby blanket to tie Joan's hands, but it kept coming undone. After several attempts, he successfully bound her hands with one of her pillowcases and led her roughly into the living room. Joan was frightened as she listened to her attacker take something from a bag. 
She asked him what he was doing, and the man responded, saying, You'll see. He then started walking her back into the bedroom, all the while telling Joan that he was not going to hurt her. Knowing what lay ahead, most likely a sexual assault, Joan tried to think of things to say to the man that might drive him away. At one point, Joan told the man that she'd gained weight and did not look good after having just had a baby. Her belief was that hopefully the man would find her unattractive and then just go away. The monster, however, told Joan she was perfect and sweet. From the agreed statement of facts in the case, quote, Upon their return to her bedroom, the intruder put a pillowcase over Joan's head. This ultimately made her claustrophobic, so the man reconfigured it into a blindfold. He then slid down the right side of her tank top, revealing Joan's right breast. He took a photograph of her. He then slid down the whole tank top and took another photograph of her breasts. He also repeatedly touched her breasts. Next, he had her take her pants off and took more photographs of her. This made Joan very upset, but the man said he was not going to do anything further and that he was going to leave after that, end quote. The man ordered Joan not to move, to be quiet, and left the room briefly. While he was gone, Joan feared that the intruder had gone into her daughter's room and might hurt the sleeping baby. But when he came back to the bedroom, she could hear her attacker rummaging around in the dresser drawers where she kept her underwear. She would later discover that some of her panties and a few bras were missing, presumably taken by the intruder. Most likely to cover up possible DNA evidence, the intruder took the sheets from the bed as well. The man then ordered Joan to stand up. He touched her breasts again and put his face up against hers. He whispered into her ear, asking her daughter's age. He's, he's truly sick. Yeah, he knew that. That's sadistic. Yeah. He did that because he knew. It would freak her out. Even it more. would freak her out and frighten her. He was like trying to dig in to make mm-hmm. her as, as frightened as possible. I've read some things about past, or sadistic predators. Yeah. They get off on the fear that they create. Yeah. That is part of what creates the sexual excitement for them is the fear. The intruder then redressed Joan in the pajama bottoms and camisole she'd been wearing at the outset of the attack. Joan was concerned about her daughter and asked the intruder to take her to the baby's room. The intruder roughly shoved her toward the baby's room and allowed Joan to kiss her daughter's cheek, proving the baby was okay. The man then told Joan he was leaving, but before he left, he warned Joan to count to 300 before removing her blindfold or she'd get hurt. Joan counted to 70 and stopped, but the man was still there and gruffly told her to keep counting. She started counting again. When Joan got to 200, she yelled out and listened for a response, but did not hear anything in return. She undid her blindfold and again made sure the baby was all right. The child was sleeping soundly. Joan called a number of people, including her husband's mother. She told them what had just happened, and then she called 911 at around 3 a.m. after what had been a harrowing two-hour assault. Her mother and brother-in-law showed up with a family friend before the OPP arrived. The two men looked around the property and in adjoining backyards. They found the sliding glass patio door was unlocked and assumed that's how Joan's attacker had entered. When the police arrived, despite having been blindfolded and in the dark for the whole ordeal, Joan was able to give a detailed description of the man who sexually assaulted her. From the agreed statement of facts in the case, her description was as follows. Perhaps between 30 and 50 years of age to her, he seemed like a dad. Not that tall, perhaps a head taller than she was, 5'2". Average build. She didn't feel any facial hair. He didn't wear glasses. He did not have anything covering his face. She thought he was wearing all black, but couldn't be sure. His sweater was tight, and she ripped it at one point by grabbing it. He was wearing hiking boots. He tried to make his voice sound deep and breathe loud. He had a ring on his finger, but she was not sure which hand, and he smelled dirty. Joan recalled the man having taken at least seven photos of her during the assault. She said although he'd been rough and forceful, the man had not hurt her physically, and she did not feel she required a visit to the hospital. By 7.35 a.m., Two identification constables of the OPP Forensic Identification Services, FIS, 
had arrived on scene and examined Jones' home for evidence. Their search revealed, among other things, the following. A screen had been cut on one of the side windows to the home. Jane's bed was bare of sheets and blankets. A duvet on the floor had been stripped of its cover, and the two pillowcases the attacker had used to tie her hands and blindfold her were located in her daughter's bedroom. As a canine unit swept the area for leads and came up empty, the ident officers in Jones' home continued their work. They also swabbed various parts of both Joan and her bedroom in an effort to find DNA samples suitable for comparison analysis. They obtained, amongst others, a sample from the back of her neck, later determined to be suitable for DNA analysis. This sample would be crucial later on in tying the perpetrator, Russell Williams, physically to this crime. Joan had had enough of Cozy Cove, and after the police were finished interviewing her, she fled to Belleville and never returned to what they'd hoped would be a safe place to live. According to Alan R. Warren's book Beyond Suspicion, Joan's boyfriend was the one who returned to the house to collect her belongings. Despite a thorough investigation over the ensuing weeks and months that included the identification and elimination of possible suspects, the police were unable to identify Joan's attacker. Only hours after attacking Joan, Williams was in Belleville meeting with members of Criminal Intelligence Service Ontario to discuss an upcoming charity event for wounded soldiers. He then returned to Trenton to attend an event there. In the next few days, Williams brazenly returned to Joan's home three more times, stealing more of her underwear, taking photos of himself in the home clad only in one of the woman's thongs. Okay, that's weird and creepy, not because he's wearing women's clothes. No. If you if you feel sexy and whatever, go yeah. f- go for it, kids. Yep. Right? Yep. But the fact that he's breaking into other people's houses and doing it is just, that's the weird and creepy part. Yeah, exactly. And it's what's in his mind and in his heart at the time that he is taking pictures of himself wearing these women's clothing. He's getting off on the power that he feels. Like this, I'm sure this stuff makes him feel like a god. You know, like, look at what I can do. Look at the power that I have. Yeah, but if you boil it down, look what I can do. I can break into somebody's house and steal their panties and put it on. Ooh, big man. Right? And that's another thing that was interesting. He always wanted to make sure that there was no men in the house. Yeah, because he's a little man. Less than two weeks after Joan's attack on September 30th, 2009, it happened again. Another woman was attacked in her Tweed, Ontario home. This time, a woman named Lori Massacott was the target. She'd fallen asleep watching a rerun of Law & Order when, around 1 a.m., Lori was awakened by a loud crash somewhere in her home. She sat bolt upright and cried out, Who's there? Before she could get her bearings, someone hit her in the head, hard, with what later turned out to be a flashlight. What's happening, she cried, and was met with three more hard blows. From Alan R. Warren's Beyond Suspicion. Then a cold, assertive male voice answered her. Don't you realize what's going on? She felt a strong hand wrap its fingers around her throat. You're being cleaned out. Shh. I need you to be quiet. Don't make a sound. Lori could feel the weight of the man's body press against her, and the man's grip became so strong around her throat she could feel her face get hot and her blood trying to flow through her neck. Lori then managed to get out the words, Please don't. I can't breathe. While trying to get some air. She began to cry and continued to try to talk. I have children. They can't find me like this. Please don't do this to me. Please. The intruder let Lori lay back onto the bed, still leaving the comforter over her face. It's my job to control you. Don't dare challenge my authority. This is going to take a while. End quote. Just like he had with Joan, Russell Williams bound and blindfolded the terrified Lori Massacott, forcing her to stay covered, almost smothering her under her comforter. As they chatted, Lori told him her age. She was 47. He warned her not to look at him as he rummaged around the home, looking for Tylenol for Lori's throbbing head and better material to bind her with. He spoke in a way that made Lori think the intruder might not be alone. From Beyond Suspicion, quote, Lori next noticed the red light of the camera as the intruder started to take pictures of her. After he took three or four pictures, he sat down beside her again. I want to take some more pictures, but I'll need to pull your shirt up first. 
Lori felt the intruder slowly pull her shirt up until it rested on her shoulders around her neck. He stood up again and he started to take more pictures of her. When he finished taking the pictures, he sat down beside her again. He then took his left hand and moved it across her chest under her bra, where he cupped her breast firmly. Lori protested loudly and startled her assailant who pulled his hand away and allowed her to pull her shirt down again. However, moments later, he used the extremely sharp knife he was carrying and cut her shirt from her body in one swift motion. He took more pictures, cut off her bra, took more photos, touching her intermittently. He then cut off her pajama bottoms. Again, there was the electronic click of the intruder snapping more photos of the woman, who by now was in fear for her life. The creep told her to pose for him, to turn for him, as he snapped photo after photo of her most private parts, ordering her this way and that as he clicked away. He took so many photos, he had to insert new batteries into the camera at one point during the assault. The man wiped things in the house down, warning Lori to stay still in her bedroom as he did. When he was done, he came back into Lori's room and, according to beyond suspicion, rifled through Lori's underwear drawer and took some of her underwear. Lori laid still in the dark as her attacker had instructed for around 30 minutes before smoking a couple cigarettes and calling 911. Lori told Star reporters later that she was appalled by how she was treated by the officers who responded to the 911 call. Quote, Massacott said police told her she had to remain tied up in her home in Tweed, Ontario, under the same comforter Williams left her covered with until an Ontario provincial police photographer arrived to document the scene. She remained in her restraints for five hours after she managed to dial 911, she said. She said, the worst part is I've survived this and I'm in survivor mode and the police are trying to blame me or make this my fault. They didn't believe me. Massacott said she was further humiliated when a neighbor told her a police officer said there was suspicion she was copycatting a previous sexual assault, end quote. Lori Massacott had no idea that another Tweed woman, Joan, had been sexually assaulted on her street 12 days earlier. She learned of that only after her own traumatizing experience. For some reason, police had not warned people in the area about the previous assault. According to The Star, one detective most likely feeling a twinge of guilt for the department's mishandling of the previous case said to Massacott, We're very sorry we didn't get this out to the public. I can guarantee you this will make the news tomorrow morning. Cold comfort to Lori Massacott, I'm sure. I thought police training was better. I think they're trying to improve. Because they are, but over and over and over again, you hear victims, how they weren't believed or treated well. Mm -hmm. Or like this example here of like not alerting the public. Well, they didn't alert the public in the case of my attempted abduction. Right, so it's like, oh, so just let's leave him alone so he can try it without people being more cautious. Yeah, I don't know who made that decision mm. not to alert people. You know, it, it doesn't make any bloody sense at all. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, there is a predator in the area who has taken the opportunity to try and... Nab somebody. Nab somebody, sexually assault somebody, just physically assault somebody. Shouldn't there be a warning to the public, especially if it's like a random, maybe a random attack. Maybe we'd, maybe we'd hear one every day. Maybe we should. Yeah. Unknown to all but the perpetrator himself, he had been inside Lori's home several times prior to the attack on Lori Massacott. He was on reconnaissance missions, which included the theft of her underwear. Several suspects were investigated, including another neighbor of Lori's named Larry Jones, who she said had a similar voice to her attackers. The police looked at Larry intently for some time, but polygraph results seemed to clear him. It was not until after two women had been murdered and the intense OPP investigation that followed those crimes that it became clear who was the perpetrator of these previous crimes. And we'll talk about those events and what led to this creep's capture in next week's episode. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 196, Without Honor, The Crimes of Russell Williams, part one. Crazy story so far, and it gets crazier next week. Yeah, this deserves a two-parter because it's so, it's so bonkers. Yeah. And he did so much. That's right. It's time for voicemails. 
you can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Our first voicemail seems to come from somewhere in Manitoba. 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 Hi there, this is Jordan Weeb calling. Um, I've been a longtime supporter of you guys listening almost every day, especially when I'm at work. Um, and I'm just currently um, at work, don't tell my boss. But um, I was listening to the case on Vince Lee. And um, I grew up in McGregor, Manitoba, which is basically where it happened. It actually happened right in front of my best friend's, and best friend's house. Um, which is kind of scary to think about. And, um, yeah, um, just wanted to say thank you for so, thank you so much for what you guys do. Um, and go shit in your hat. Bye. Well, thank you so much. How, how do, thank you for calling in. How do people listen to a podcast while they work? I used to do it too. See, I can't, I, the only thing I can put on, I can't even put on music with lyrics. Mm -hmm. I put on like those bad, like, you know, ambient study music things. <laughs> See, I have tinnitus or tinnitus, depends on how you pronounce it, which is a loud ringing in my ears from years of rock and roll. And I just have to have something in the background when I'm working because it helps me to focus, actually. So <laughs> from your years of rock and roll, it makes it sound, makes you sound like you're a rock star. No, listening to rock and roll <laughs> and stupidly standing in front of, uh, speakers in the front row you have a really wide uh, music taste though like when we came in today you were playing thompson twins yeah i love thompson twins yeah. uh, like anything see uh, you go from like acdc to like anything new wave yeah i like industrial as well some heart like nine inch nails ministry okay all that Twitch. kind of stuff yeah exactly <laughs> exactly i have all those albums yeah but, me too um yeah I'd, I'd say i have eclectic taste but i don't like reba mcintyre no horrible um do you listen to classical music i do i was listening to wagner this week oh hitler's favorite yeah i mean it's still it's good music who cares if hitler liked it as well exactly right? yeah yeah because i watched that uh, movie about the the guy that breaks into the three different safes and they're all named from the ring cycle i don't know i i like wagner i like i think mozart is kind of my jam okay yeah a little bit of bach any contemporary classic like Philip Glass or Mike, oh Philip Glass for sure Michael I listen Nyman. to it. yeah um yeah. Uh, Max Richter oh the sleep one yep eight hours worth of music you know the first time they performed that live yeah it was in a theater and they there was a bunch of beds and people like just crawled into the bed and listened to eight hours of of sleep with the the, the orchestra playing oh I I used to play that uh on my Echo my yeah. Amazon Echo beside the bed that while I was sleeping, mm. it would just yeah. lull me to sleep. Me too. I put, I, I put earphones in though. Mm. And our next voicemail, where is that from? Hmm. Let's find out. Hello, Mike and Matt. First time caller, long time listener before uh, Matt came along. Just wanted to call after the Halloween um, episode. Matt is something that really touched me in regards to how we are as human beings on this planet in the universe. And it I've always felt that way, but the way he worded it was just truly beautiful. And it's the reason why I'm calling, actually. <laughs> I've always listened to the episodes from beginning to end. I loved it. I enjoy uh, your banter, um, your commentary. I think the both of you definitely, I'm young. <laughs> Not that saying that you guys are old, but um, I'm definitely, uh, I'm the end of the millennial age. So it's nice to have people who, you know, aren't in my age group who have similar points of view and they're learning just like I'm learning every day what's happening in this world and just showing other people that regardless of your age, you know, you got to learn and everything. So I really, I really like that about the two of you. Your dynamic is wonderful. Um, I'm calling in from New York, Staten Island, New York. Whoop, whoop. And, uh, yeah, keep what you guys are doing. I, I enjoy them. I've been listening um, since uh, 2019, going into 2020. I was actually living abroad, just like Matt, another reason why I fuck with you. Bleep that out if <laughs> you have to. Um, 
but that's why I got into you, and I wasn't by myself, traveling by myself, so, you know, that that absence of someone else's podcast definitely filled up, so I love you guys, keep doing what you're doing, and I guess the best New York version of uh, what you Canadians say is uh, take a shit in your cap, or in your fitted, you know, take a, take a dump in your fitted, I think that's the most appropriate New York way, no New Yorker, has another way. There's different ways, but uh, I think it's the best one. So take a dump in your fitted. Thanks, guys. Have uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Have a good one. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's great. She I, could have said "Okay, Boomer" and, and just <laughs> left, left okay. it at that. I can't. Re- I can't remember what I said, but I'm glad it. I'm sure it was lovely, Matthew. I'm glad it hit a hit a good note. And I like what she says about constantly learning. Yeah. A, a colleague of mine <laughs> said to me, "She's like, if I hadn't met you." I would think you were 200 years old. And I said, what do you mean? Why the gray in your beard? She's like, you know so much stuff. I'm like, I'm like, it's just because I'm old. I'm like, I'm the age of your parents. She's like, my parents don't know half the stuff you do. (laughs) Well. But it's all useless stuff. (laughs) I don't know. I I feel like, I think trying to have an open mind is, is something that, uh, we both do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I now have a deep, deep need to go to New York. I do too. I, I miss, really want to go. To, you know, I, I used to have a place down on Spring and Sullivan in Soho. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't from Manhattan, but it, it's Manhattan time for me sometime soon. Uh, I love that city. Manhattan. I've never been. No. Never been. Not once, not one single time have I been to New York. Why don't we go see a Reaper McIntyre <laughs> You're such an ass. God, I can't stand her. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it for voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you anyway. We'd love to hear from you regardless (laughs) of what you have to say. Well, unless you want to talk about Reba McIntyre, then we want to fucking go in. Sorry, don't go in. Don't call. Matthew's done. Anyway, uh, if you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a good story, again, not about Reba McIntyre, is probably the best thing that you can do. Oh, no. Can't stop. Yeah. Sorry. Let's take a little break before we go on to patrons. Now that Matthew has stopped laughing about Reba McIntyre, let's move on to patrons and donut money donors. First up, we have... From Kingston, Ontario, home of Canada's federal prison, or former home, I should say, Mm. Ashley Fuller. Hello, Ashley. Thank you. What does Ashley do there in Kingston, Ontario? Maybe she works at the RV sales with my friend Ian. That's exactly what she does. Really? Yeah. Yeah, my buddy Ian, who I grew up with, he and I used to get up to very no good things, and... uh, yeah, so she probably knows my buddy Ian. I'm not going to say his last name because I don't want to. Recreational vehicles. Is that what RV stands for? Yes, recreational vehicle. Yeah. I I have always kind of wanted to have a recreational vehicle. I don't want one that you can tow. You want to be a Winnebago warrior? No, I just want a van. Brave as old John Wayne. True Yankee pioneer. Sure. Yeah, I just want a van. I just want a van that you can sleep in and cook your dinner in kind of thing. Not... A windowless van. I was just thinking no. windowless seventies van. Yeah, with, with free candy painted on the side. Remember in the seventies how people used to like paint like really the bad. airbrush? Airbrush like hawks and ladies on the side of the yep, van. With big swords. So yeah. Weird. Very fantasy related. Looked like a uh something from a cover of Heavy Metal magazine. Did. Which I loved, by the way. Well, thank you very much, thank Ashley. You, Ashley. Next, we have from Waterdown, Ontario, Aaron Hall. Aaron Hall. And what does Aaron Hall do there in Waterdown, Ontario? In, she's in Waterdown. Yes. Is, wasn't there a book about Waterdown? I don't remember. I don't know. Maybe there was. About the rabbits? No, that's, <laughs> that's Watership Down. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's different. And that's a very depressing book and movie. Okay, well, she... She officially tells people that the town has nothing to do with Watership Down. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, water down, just like what I did with mom and dad's booze after I stole it. <laughs> Watered it down. Yeah. 
Yeah, we did that a few times as well. Just yeah. top up that vodka with some water. Terrible children we were. Nobody ever noticed. No, I'm sure they noticed. It's like, hmm. Well, if you put it in whiskey, they'd notice. But if you put it in vodka, they mix mix it anyway. It yeah. Matter. Well, thank you so much, thank Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. And, and keep warning people that this is not Watership Down. It's Water Down. Next, we have Nat Lockwood. And Nat is from West Yorkshire in the UK. Ah. Yeah. So I, I love it when we have uh, patrons from the UK because I get to see the little pound symbol by their name. And I got, and I got, I get to think about home. Yeah. Uh, what do you miss most about the UK, Matthew? Uh, the humor and my friends. The humor? Yes. Um, what, what particular brand, like Monty Python or no, just hum- eight out of 10 cats no, do countdown? No, just humor amongst people. Ah, okay. It's wittier, it's smarter. Yeah. And people just often don't get my humor here. Sometimes you're not funny. It, that can't be it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you, Nat. What does Nat, you, Nat do there in West Yorkshire? He's an official Yorkshire. Looks like Nat is a she. Sorry, I'm sorry, Nat. Okay. Oh, like as a Natalie or some other version of that. Could be, yeah. Okay, Nat. Just, Nat yeah, Nat, just say Nat. Nat is the official Yorkshire tea taster. Wow. Yes. Um, I There is a great tea called Yorkshire tea. Do, do you like that tea brand of tea specifically? I've had it occasionally, but I was by a Sam. You know that there's a British store up the road from us here. On really? 72nd, yeah. 72nd Ooh. and King George. Can I borrow a face mask and go after? Yes, absolutely. Time? I forgot my face mask. Why don't we go together? We can go together. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. So we're going to the British store. Yay, I'll check if it's <laughs> Th- open. Thanks, Matt. So you've, you've, you've put Mike and I on a, on a little adventure today. A little adventure. Uh, let's move on to our donut money donors. And it looks like we have had a couple of those. Yay. First up, we have, wait a minute. Wait a minute. From Maine, our friend Katrina Hockey. Katrina's back. She's back again. She says, greetings, Mike and Matthew. After hearing that you didn't receive any donut money or patron Aww. donations last week, veto your barnyard friend with the super long, long tongue. tongue. <laughs> super duper long tongue. <laughs> that tongue is so cool. <laughs> Ask me to send you some love. He is Aww. sending sloppy kisses along with his donation. Thanks again for a true crime podcast that goes above and beyond for your sensitivity when addressing mental health disorders. Uh, as a psychiatric provider, I feel your podcast helps reduce stigma around mental health and substance use, and I truly appreciate this. P.S. I may live in Maine, but I am 100% Canadian, born and raised in Nova Scotia. Keep up the great work and go take a shit in your hat. Thank you, Katrina. Yes. I love it. She's great. Yeah. And so have you seen the picture of Vito? I have. He's so cute. Yeah, Vito's that awesome. I'm like, you have to like moisturize it, I think. Because <laughs> it's so long. <laughs> and next up, we have Darren Kohler. And Darren didn't leave us a message or anything. So where is Darren from? Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay, Grand Rapids, Michigan, right across the water from... Uh, Ontario. Ontario. What does Darren do there in Grand Rapids? He is a portaging specialist. Well, there you go. Yeah. You need to portage when you're close to rapids. Yeah. Grand Rapids, everyone has to carry their canoes across the street. Then I'm wearing actually a, a jersey for the Halifax hockey team right now, oh, is which is the, yes, the Mooseheads, the Halifax Mooseheads. But when I was a child, there was a hockey team called the Nova Scotia Voyageurs. And the voyageurs were known for portaging as they went to. Do you, um, do you like ice hockey? I like some ice hockey. Yes. It depends, you know, on the team. Okay. Really? And then he, yeah. I don't like to watch the Timbits very much, little kids, because, you know, not very good. Not very good at hockey. (laughs) Come on, you can be better than this. It's like, come on, hit him. Hit him with your purse. My mom and stepdad love hockey to the point of they moved across the street from the from the JLC in London, Ontario, just so they could walk across the street during the season and watch games. See, now I want to go hang out with them. I would do that. That would be fun. You're not like not big into ice hockey. They took me, and I just like you, people play, and then they stop. Mm-hmm. 
and then they're skating around and some shit's happening and then they play again and then they oh, stop. Oh, so you don't understand the rules. Well, they stop more than they play. Not necessarily. No. I, no. Maybe I should try to get into it, but. I'll um, take you to a hockey game. How about that? Like, let's, let's make a plan to go to a Canucks game in the new year. Are they here in Vancouver? They are. <laughs> yes, okay. absolutely. Okay. Or we'll even go to a cheaper one, which are the Abbotsford Canucks. Sort of the farm team. No, if you're going to take me to hockey, you're going to take me to the good one. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, fair enough. Um, so thank you so much, Darren Kohler. Much thank appreciated. You, Darren. Yeah. And keep up the good work. We really appreciate it. They're doing what you do as far as helping people with their portaging in Grand Rapids. In Grand Rapids, Michigan. Michigan. <laughs> Thank you to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Hey, you know what? What? Somebody asked me what the email address was for the show the other day. Right. Uh... And you say it at the end of every show. I say it at the end of every show. Aww. And so you cannot, it, so if you need to send us a vo- uh, an email, just use the one that we just said, darkproteinpodcast.gmail.com. It works for pay, it works, it works for PayPal better than it does for email. Okay. <laughs> because PayPal brings me money, whereas mm-hmm. an email may not. Money! Money. <laughs> oh boy. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm going to can all this. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available for is available to order via link on the Dark Poutine website, or just go to Amazon or Indigo, wherever you get your books. And it's mm, mm, good. Yes. And it's also in Walmart. Somebody sent a picture of my book in Walmart. Oh, that's too bad. Destined for the 99 cent bin. Walmart. I know nothing about Walmart other than it keeps a riffraff out of Urban Fair. Oh, you're such a snob. <laughs> and <laughs> speaking of our website, darkpoutine.com, Check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>